Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Welcome to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are joined by Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, we meet on a weekly basis, and it seems like every week something interesting comes to pass, and sounds like the, the latest thing to... Uh, Make some headway or some headlines, make some waves, if you will, is, uh, is it looks like masks may be going away, at least in an official capacity. Masks, well, we're going to have to see on that. I guess that a couple of days ago, a federal judge in Florida ruled that the mask mandate, as applied to public transit like trains and airlines and so on, was unconstitutional, that they could not be forced to require their passengers or customers to wear masks, which didn't mean that they would not be allowed to wear masks. Passengers could wear masks if they wish. And if airlines or Amtrak or other companies want to require them to wear masks, they can do so. But the CDC was not going to be requiring them to do so. That was the ruling from the federal judge, that there was no authority for the CDC or the Biden administration to issue a mandate requiring that the airlines force their passengers to wear masks. Well, at first, President Biden announced that they would not appeal this decision and apparently managed to say that before the Easter Bunny waved him away from the gathering or whatever happened. Yes, I don't know if that was the same time or not. But then they walked that back and said they might appeal it. And now the latest thing that I'm reading is that the Justice Department is going to appeal it. However, they're not going to enforce it while the case is being litigated. So the airlines don't seem to want this mandate. It seems like they never really did. The airlines were saying all along that because of the ventilation and so on they have, that they didn't feel masks were necessary, but they reluctantly complied with the administration's order. And so I doubt that they're going to reinstate the order. And I rather doubt that Amtrak is going to, but some of the local transits, like the New York Subway Authority and so on, have said that they are going to keep the mask mandates in effect, regardless of whether the federal government says they have to or not. All of which creates something of a difficulty for people that have enjoyed these mandates. They can still wear them. and You still see... People that wear their masks while they're in their car alone driving. And somebody's had a sticker one time saying, if you wear your mask in your car while you're driving, you don't need a Biden sticker. I know you voted for him. But the Babylon Bee just had an item today here titled, you know, they always have some pretty good satire. It's titled, Seven Ways to Cope Now That You Can't Force People Around You to Wear Masks. And anyway, I'll just read this, and this is humor, of course. But the mask mandates have ended, and life is returning to normal unless you don't fly and live in the half of the country that has been normal for two years. It can be difficult, though, to suddenly see all those triggering human faces after the government coddled you and fed you your psychological delusion and fear for the last two years. But here are seven ways to go. One, Close your eyes and imagine everyone is wearing a full hazmat suit. 
It's a neat little trick that actually works. Two, scream of the sky. This is a well-known coping mechanism. It works especially well if you record your scream onto your TikTok account. I'm not sure what a TikTok account is, actually, but <laughs> I think the only reason I'd ever get one is to see how quickly I could get myself kicked off. Three, play The Sims 4 and manage other people's lives like you're an all-powerful god to your heart's content. Now you can drown people by surrounding their swimming pools with an impenetrable wall of potted plants. You're in charge here. Four, upgrade to three or four masks. Or just roll around in a giant hamster ball. Keep upping the number of masks you wear. But if that's not enough, go the hamster ball route. Five, get your pilot's license and start your own airline. Airlines are private companies. They can do what they want. Six, just remember we're all in this together, just for a little while. It's a small sacrifice to make. If it saves one toddler from a speech impediment, it's all worth it. And seven, never go outside again. Curl up in a ball and live out the rest of your days in the corner of your home, supposedly completely safe from COVID. Well, anyway, so sometimes the Babylon Bee has a few notes of humor that show a little wisdom that contribute to our understanding of the matter here. There is another matter that we need to look at on this whole COVID issue today, and that is an order from the U.S. Supreme Court that came down, I believe, yesterday. And in this order, the Supreme Court, on a 6-3 to three vote, ruled that they are not going to order the Air Force to stop discharge proceedings against a lieutenant colonel who has been discharged or who is in the process of being discharged because of his religious objection to wearing a mask. Now, this sounds like bad news, especially since we've got all of these cases all over the country right now. We have the Navy SEALs in two cases, one in Florida and one in Texas. And in the Texas case, they have requested that there are these, all, these Navy personnel, SEALs and divers and a few others, they have requested that the order protecting them be enlarged to include all Navy personnel. And a federal judge there in Texas ruled in their favor and said they could bring this as a class action on behalf of all Navy personnel. The Navy has appealed that decision to the Fifth Circuit and in the foundation we will be filing an amicus brief in support of the Navy SEALs and others in, in this particular case. We have another Navy SEALs case in Florida, another Air Force officer case, a totally different one in, in Georgia. And there are quite a few others of these going on at all as well. Now, the fact that we get a Supreme Court ruling like this first, that sounds pretty, pretty un unfortunate. It sounds pretty bad. It isn't a very good fortune for our people that are fighting these cases. However, you have to remember that all they have done is asked for emergency relief from the Supreme Court. And essentially, the six judges who voted 
not to give that emergency order or simply saying, we're going to wait and let the proceedings play out. It is an unusual situation when the Supreme Court issues an emergency order. And anyway, three of the justices, Justice Gorsuch, Justice Thomas, and Justice Alito dissented, they would grant the emergency order. My guess is that three of them, Justice Breyer and Justice Sotomayor and Justice Kagan, will not want to give any relief at all. They'll want to uphold the government's authority to kick these people out. And then we have the three in the middle, Chief Justice Roberts and Justices Kavanaugh and Barrett. And I don't know what they're going to do, but they're simply saying right now, we just want to wait and let the proceedings play out. That doesn't necessarily mean that they'll vote against the Air Force officer in the end after the cases played out in the lower courts. As I say, they're reluctant many times to issue an initial order, an emergency order. They many times want to wait and see what happens at the lower level and let the case play out before they intervene. And hopefully this doesn't mean that all six of those are going to be ruling in favor of the military authority to discharge people who won't get the mask or won't get the vaccination. Hopefully it doesn't mean that, but we'll have to see. It sounds it's unfortunate, but it isn't as bad as it could possibly be. And we just need to understand it in this light. Many times we see that as meaning they're definitely, the Supreme Court is definitely on the side of the vaccination mandates. Not necessarily the case. Again, we'll just kind of watch and see how that one plays out. In the meantime, we're going to get back to our look at the Ten Commandments, and we're going to be seeing here how the Ten Commandments have influenced law and influenced courts in general, and we'll be looking into that right after this break. Again, welcome back to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We're with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, I'm ready to dive back into the Ten Commandments and their influence on our own system of laws. Well, let's do that. Before we do, I might just say a couple things in regard to the Air Force case in particular. As I say, we at the Foundation filed an amicus brief in support of an Air Force officer in Georgia, she had submitted requests for religious exemption and her requests were denied. And anyway, a federal judge in that case, who himself had been a army officer, but he himself issued an order on her behalf saying that while her case is pending, that the Air Force was prohibited from discharging her or taking any administrative action against her. However, <clears throat> that particular case 
affects only her. It's not broadened beyond her any kind of class action. But in the press release that we filed after we'd gotten the ruling on that, and after we had issued our amicus brief, I said in that press release, having been an Air Force officer myself, I served 23 years in the Air Force, five of them of active and 18 in reserve. And as a <clears throat> Air Force judge advocate or Air Force lawyer, I wasn't a pilot and can't really say that I had a lot of heroics in my career. Sometimes I tell people I flew the SD-6. Uh, do you know what the SD-6 is, Brian? I don't. Secret aircraft, the SD-6. Stands for steel desk, six drawers. <laughs> but nevertheless, the pilots couldn't be doing their job if we weren't doing our job on the ground. Ours may be less heroic, but it is just as honorable and just as necessary. You know, our son was out of the Air Force Academy. He served 23 years or 21 years in the Air Force, recently retired, is now flying for an airline. But Anyway, while he was at the academy, out there, they had a special display case. And that display case contained goblets with names inscribed on them. And these were the names of the 100 pilots and crew that flew with the Doolittle Raiders. And you see these goblets here, the case of 100 goblets, silver, and some of them were upside down, some of them were upright. The ones that were upright had the names of Army Air Corps personnel that were still living. Whenever one died, his goblet was turned upside down. And right in the middle, <clears throat> there was a bottle of wine and cognac, I believe it was. But anyway, the plan was that when there were only two left, they would meet for one final reunion. They would open the goblet and drink one final toast to their companions, after which the Doolittle Raiders would <clears throat> fade into history. And of course, history would be mixed with legend. Well, I'm just going to read you a little article from Fort Walton Beach. 80 gleam I said 100, sorry, it's 80. 80 gleaming silver goblets stood in a blue velvet-lined case, each engraved with the name of one of the famed Doolittle Raiders. All had been turned upside down, all but one, bearing the name of Richard Cole, co-pilot to Jimmy Doolittle. At the time of his death, the 103-year-old pilot had been part of that daring bombing mission over Tokyo that marked a special mission that forced Japan to divert forces to safeguard its own island. I'd add also that the Doolittle Raid also gave America quite a morale boost at a time when right in the very beginning of the war, it appeared it wasn't going very well. For decades following the war, their surviving raiders would gather privately once a year to toast their departed comrades with fine cognac and then solemnly turn over the goblet for each man who had died. On Monday, the 80th anniversary of the raid, the final goblet ceremony was held to remember Dick Cole 
and his fellow Doolittle Raiders, the last chapter of a foundational piece of Air Force lore. The Raiders led the way, and many had followed, said Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall, his voice heavy with emotion, as he recalled what they did that day during the ceremony at Northwest Florida State College near Eglin Air Force Base. Cole, originally from Dayton, Ohio, was just 26 years old when he volunteered for the secret mission that would turn out to be the Doolittle Raid. The Raiders trained at then Eglin Airfield in March 1942, confined to base in isolated barracks, and strictly ordered not to talk to anyone about what they were doing. We knew it would be dangerous, but that's all. Cole, who was posthumously promoted to colonel in 2021, said in an interview. But when they started learning how to get B-25 Mitchell bombers airborne in just 500 feet, 500 feet because they were departing from an aircraft carrier, instead of the 3,000 feet they usually needed, and how to take off from a carrier, they knew they were going to strike Japan. Cole originally wasn't supposed to be Doolittle's co-pilot, but when Doolittle's intended co-pilot became unable to fly, and the pilot Cole had been training with Phil Ill, the two men were paired together. The B-25s were stripped as bare as possible to lighten the load, double the fuel capacity, and allow the bombers to fly as far as they could. Even their rear defensive turrets were pulled out and painted broomsticks installed in their place as decoy guns to try to dissuade Japanese fighters from trying to strike from the back. The Raiders, in other words, they want to fly as light as they possibly can because they have only limited fuel they can carry. And to leave the carrier and fly over Tokyo, well, they're not going to have enough fuel to fly back. So what they're going to have to do is fly over Japan and land in China. The Raiders and their 16 B-25 set sail on the aircraft carrier Hornet on April 2, 1942, when the Navy ran into a Japanese ship. Navy Admiral William Bull Halsey worried their cover had been blown and decided to launch the mission earlier than had been planned. Before the mission, Doolittle promised the Raiders that if they survived, I'm going to throw you guys the biggest party you've ever seen. Well, the, the first Doolittle Raider reunion took place. There had been damage, but it was a party. It was quite a party. Air Force Special Operations Command had Lieutenant General Jim Slife said at the ceremony, when someone suggested they make the raucous event an annual occasion, Doolittle protested that he couldn't afford covering the cost of the aftermath. But afterward, they began gathering each year on the anniversary of the raid in different locations. In 1959, the city of Tucson, Arizona, presented them with these sterling, uh, 80 sterling silver goblets, each engraved with the name of one of the raiders. Those who had already passed had their names engraved only once, upside down. Some of them had died on impact when they landed in China. Some were killed by the Japanese. Some were executed. Some were made prisoners. Some were made prisoners by the Soviets, who supposedly were our allies, but were really thinking only of themselves, not America. Each year during the goblet ceremony, the Raiders would call the roll, raise the glass of 1896 Hennessy cognac, 
Doolittle's favorite from the year of his birth, to those who had died since they had last met, and toast to those who have gone. At that point, the goblets of the newly departed raiders would be reverently turned upside down and put back in the wooden case that Cole built himself. At Monday's ceremony, Lieutenant General Brad Reb, commander of Air Education and Training Command, said the raiders were instrumental in establishing the warrior ethos of what would soon become the United States Air Force. The role was then called one last time. One by one, an Air Force special operator in the audience stood to represent each raider as their names were called, and either they or a surviving family member responded, here. And we are back. This is Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, is it time to discuss the Decalogue once again? It is. We had a few preliminaries, but I think they have been important. But let's get back to the Decalogue because the Decalogue is the moral foundation of law. For the last several months, we've been going through the Ten Commandments one by one, sometimes interrupted by current events. But we've looked to what the commandment says, how it has been interpreted and applied, and how the courts have used them from time to time. Part of my reason for doing this is to show that they are the moral foundation of law. But another reason is looking at the fact that we have seen quite a number of cases in which people have challenged displays of the Ten Commandments in public settings, saying that these constitute an establishment of religion, and the court still is undecided on that. The most recent case took place, I think it was around 2000 AD, two cases the same day. One was McCreary versus Kentucky, and anyway, in McCreary, the Supreme Court 5-4 to four said that the Ten Commandments, as they appeared on the wall of a courthouse, were an unconstitutional establishment of religion because they stood alone and seemed to be an endorsement of religion. To which my question is, which religion were they endorsing? Judaism, Christianity, Islam, or other religions that accept the Ten Commandments? But on the same day, the Supreme Court also decided in Van Orden versus Perry that a Ten Commandments display on the lawn of the Texas State Capitol was constitutional. Part of the reason was there were many displays out there, so it did not stand alone, and therefore did not appear to be a unique endorsement of any one religion. But so with all of these, we see that the Ten Commandments as to where they stand as far as the authority to display them in public settings, that is not clear yet. The courts are still not decided. Each case is going to turn on the facts of the case, and each case is also going to turn on what particular judge happens to be hearing it. And, but as to their influence, I've talked about how they have been cited in court decisions. Part of my reason for doing so is my argument is that if it is permissible for judges to cite the Ten Commandments, either as a whole or individual commandments, in official decisions of federal and state courts, then it ought to be constitutional to display them as well. But let's look now at the influence of the Ten Commandments 
as a whole. And I'm going to go back to 1899. This is a case of Moore versus Strickland. It's a decision of the West Virginia Supreme Court. And in this case, a public official had been fired for having solicited a prostitute. And he challenged that firing in court. State law said that a public official could be fired for a crime that amounts to moral turpitude, and in other words, has distinct moral flavor to it. And he said soliciting a prostitute is not a crime of moral turpitude. The state said, yes, it is. It is related to adultery and things that are prohibited by the Ten Commandments. And he took it up to the West Virginia Supreme Court, and the West Virginia Supreme Court agreed with the state And here's what they said. These commandments, which, like a collection of diamonds, bear testimony to their own intrinsic worth, in themselves appeal to us as coming from a superhuman or divine source. And no conscientious or reasonable man has yet been able to find a flaw in them. Absolutely flawless, negative in terms, but positive in meaning, They easily stand at the head of our whole mortal system, and no nation or people can long continue a happy existence in open violation of them. There's an interesting case in Missouri where a federal district court in Missouri in 1944 said of a pleading that had been filed there, pleading to dismiss the case, saying there wasn't jurisdiction to hear the case, Here's what the court said. They said, plaintiff's plea to the jurisdiction is almost as startling as would be a motion to dismiss the Decalogue. Again, recognizing how central the Decalogue is to American law. 1872, Yunker versus Nichols. The Colorado Territory Supreme Court said, The principles of the law are undoubtedly of universal application, but some latitude of construction must be allowed to meet the various conditions of life in different countries. The principles of the Decalogue may be applied to the conduct of men in every country and claim, but rules respecting the tenure of property must yield to the physical laws of nature wherever such laws exert a controlling influence. In other words, he's saying that The Ten Commandments are of universal application, but the way we apply them might vary a little bit from one locality to another. And when we look to the influence of Hebrew law, we see that it has had a great deal of influence, but that that influence is going to have to vary a little bit depending on the locality. E.C. Wines, a Bible teacher in the early 1800s, a friend of John Quincy Adams and others, wrote a remarkable work that was titled The Laws of the Ancient Hebrews. If you want to study Hebrew law, I'd say, first of all, go to my three-volume set, Historical and Theological Foundations of Law. But from there on, go to E.C. Wines, The Laws of the Ancient Hebrews, and I cited extensively from Wines in my own work. But here's what Wines has to say about applying the Mosaic Law to 
a particular society. He says the laws intrinsically the wisest and laws which are the wisest only when viewed as relating to times and circumstances. Laws may be perfectly wise when framed with reference to one state or society, which would be unwise and absurd if framed with reference to another condition of things. He continued, civil laws, whatever be their source, to be adopted to the wants of any given community must arise out of the circumstances and be relative to certain specific ends, which ends, under other circumstances, it might be the height of folly to pursue. When Solon, Solon was the Greek lawgiver, and Solon, let me just do a quick aside here, Solon, when he was prepared to give a set of laws to the Athenians, he traveled for about 10 years looking to laws of various other countries to get the best of each of these and bring them back. It seems very likely that of the various places that he would have visited, that the Hebrews would have been one place that he would have visited to get their insights into law. But he says, when Solon was asked whether he had given the best laws to the Athenians, he replied, I have given them the best that they were able to bear. Sage response, is it not of much the same nature with that declaration of divine wisdom to the Jews, which has so perplexed biblical inquirers? I gave them also statutes which were not good. That's Ezekiel 20, 25, by which it means laws not absolutely the best, though they were relatively so. Montesquieu, with that penetration which belongs to all his philosophical reflections, has observed that the passage cited above is the sponge that wipes out all the difficulties which are to be found in the law of Moses. This view of the meaning and force of the passage is confirmed by the words of our Savior. He has told us that Moses tolerated divorce among the Jews because of the hardness of their hearts. Matthew 19, verse 8, and Mark 10, 5. It is reasonable to conclude that he permitted the continuance of other social evils on the same principle. Now, you recall what he's saying here, that Moses, because of the hardness of people's hearts, allowed divorce, but from the beginning it was not so. It was never God's will that there be divorce. But because of the hardness of people's hearts, he knew that people could not live in a society where there was no divorce at all. People forced to live together would probably kill each other. And so he allowed divorce just because of the nature of man. It is reasonable to conclude that he permitted the continuance of other social evils on the same principle. It is implied in our Lord's declaration that if the Jews of Moses' time had been less hard-hearted, less wedded to old notions than usages, several of his statutes would have been different from what they were. That of the excellence of which Moses claims must justly, as belong to his laws, as it respects some of them at least, a relative rather than an absolute excellence, will continue after the break. Welcome you to our fourth and final segment of Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We're with Colonel John Eidsmo of the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, 
fascinating to hear uh, prominent figures throughout history acknowledging that sometimes the people can only abide a certain amount of law. I wonder how we, how that would reflect on our society today. Well, we were just talking about that a little bit ago. And remember what John Adams said when he said that our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate for the government of any other. In other words, people have to have a certain moral virtue to be able to live under a good set of laws and in a free society. And without that, freedom won't work and good laws need to be modified. Well, Wines continues in this very, very fascinating quotation, a wise legislator, whether divine or human, framing a new code of laws for a people, will give attention to considerations of climate, of religion, of existing institutions, of settled maxims of government, of precedents, morals, customs, and manners. Out of all of these, there arises a general tone or habit of feeling, thinking, and acting, which constitutes what may be called the spirit of the nation. Now, a lawgiver shows himself deficient in legislative wisdom, who makes laws which shock the general sentiment of the people, laws which are at war with the prevalent notions and rooted customs, laws which strip men of long-established and favorite rights. Nations in general cling tenaciously to what is old. True legislative wisdom, therefore, will abide by established laws when it can, even though satisfied that other laws are better in themselves, and but through the force of custom in favor of the old, would be more expedient. A wise lawgiver, who desires to see ancient usages replaced by new and different ones, will not attempt to change such customs at once by direct legal enactments, but will seek, by the introduction of judicial provisions into his code, to lead the people to change them themselves. The principle that laws must be relative to circumstances, that they must grow out of the state of society and be adopted to its wants, is founded in reason and confirmed in experience. And a good example of this might be Numbers 27, where the daughters of Zelophehad had sought to change the law originally, the Hebrew law, like the laws of other ancient societies, provided that only sons inherited from their parents. Daughters did not. It was thought the daughters would get married, and so their husbands, who had inherited from their parents, would take care of them. But we read in Numbers 27, that they, the daughters of Zelophehad, stood before Moses and before Eliezer the priest and before the princes and all the congregation by the door of the tabernacle, saying, Our father died in the wilderness, and he was not in the company of them that gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah, but died in his own sin and had no sons. Why should the name of our father be done away from among his family because he had no son? Give us, that is, us daughters, therefore, a possession among the brethren of our father. And Moses, and Moses brought their cause before the Lord. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, The daughters of Zelophehad speak right. Thou shalt surely give them a possession of an inheritance among their father's brethren. And thou shalt cause the inheritance of their father to pass unto them. And thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If a man die and have no son, then you shall cause his inheritance to pass unto his daughter. 
And if he have no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance unto his brethren. And if he have no brethren, then you shall give his inheritance unto his father's brethren. And if his father have no brethren, then you shall give his inheritance unto his kinsman that is next to him of his family, and he shall possess it. And it shall be unto the children of Israel a statute of judgment, as the Lord commanded Moses. What they're saying here is back when they were wandering through the wilderness, and at that time, the original provision that only sons would inherit made sense. But now that they are settled in the land, there is no reason to keep that. There is no reason to, to keep the law as it was. And for that reason, the change is going to be made. And anyway, so adopting absolute principles to the circumstances that apply at the time, that's just the way it's been done for a long time, and it makes a lot of sense. But the Hebrew laws had a great deal of influence. And we saw a little while ago where Patrick, for example, when he had Christianized most of Ireland, and when the high king asked him to draft a legal code that would govern all Ireland, Rather than just a drafting something new, or rather than just taking the book of Deuteronomy, he took the laws of the Druid priests and said, we will follow those laws, and we will change them only where they are inconsistent with Scripture. In other words, he kept their law intact, except where it needed to be changed to follow Scripture. And anyway, so the idea of them, people like to hold to the old customs and the old laws. But that is true in America as well. John Adams, and John Adams once commented in regard to the Marquis de Condorcet when Condorcet had talked about the accomplishments of Greek civilization. Adams said in response to him, as much as I love, esteem, and admire the Greeks, I believe the Hebrews have done more to civilize the world Moses did more than all their legislators and philosophers. And similarly, Adams wrote in 1809 to Judge Vanderkamp, the Hebrews have done more to civilize men than any other nation. God ordered the Jews to preserve and propagate to all mankind the doctrine of a supreme, intelligent, wise, almighty sovereign of the universe, which is to be the great essential principle of morality, and consequently of all civilization. And he wrote further to Judge Vanderkamp nine or seven years later in 1816, the Hebrew unity of Jehovah, the prohibition of all similitudes, that is, graven images, appears to me the greatest wonder of antiquity. John Adams' son also understood this. Now, I would love to have had the actual document, if it ever existed here. But E.C. Wines was also acquainted with John Quincy Adams, son of John Adams. And Quincy Adams, of course, became our sixth president. But Wines writes, Here I cannot but relate a conversation which I had some years ago with that eminent scholar and statesman, the late John Quincy Adams. In it, he drew with a luminousness and power peculiar to himself a contrast between the Hebrew government and the other ancient Oriental polities. 
point by point did he unfold with copious eloquence the differences between them. But that which he chiefly insisted on was the fact that all the rest were founded on force, this, that is the Hebrew only, on consent. I have regretted since that I did not ask him to commit those views to writing, to writing, and I cannot but indulge the hope that the subject will somewhere be found and alluded to, at least if not handled at length, in his posthumous papers. Well, apparently, if John, Adam, John Quincy Adams ever wrote on that subject, we don't have his writings, but John Quincy Adams, some have said that he may have been the most brilliant president in American history. But at any rate, we don't have anything that he wrote on that subject. But what is it about Hebrew law that makes Hebrew law distinct from the laws of all other nations, all other societies, all other civilizations? We're going to be looking at that in greater detail next week as we look to these precepts of Hebrew law. But John Adams himself actually touched upon that when he said that the unity of the Godhead in Jehovah, the Hebrew unity, that there is one God, Jehovah, rather than many gods. The unique feature of Hebrew law is what I'm going to call ethical monotheism. Now, by ethical monotheism, we mean, number one, that there is one God, and consider this, if there is one God, then there is one truth. And if there is one truth, then there is one system of law. If there are many gods, then we have many systems of law. Marduk has one, Odin has another, Zeus has another. If there is one God, there is one truth and one law. And we will enlarge on that next week. Thank you.